One more time, please stand as I read the scriptures. I'm reading from Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hekiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malachichah, Hashum, Hashbadan, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shepathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Thank you, Leslie. Yeah. Great job. Let's pray. Lord, as we have the opportunity now um, to look into the scriptures, Lord, there's no, there's no other book like it. There's no other knowledge that uh, compares to it. Lord, your word is the one absolutely true narrative of life, of our existence, of our future, of you. And so, Lord, let the truth of your word find its way deep into the soil of our hearts and bring forth change in us, fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the staff and I and our spouses left after church last week for our annual prayer getaway, and uh, we go on these getaways yearly to seek the Lord um, to get his heart and his mind for our church. Now, we don't, we don't go with our agenda to try and get God to do what we want him to do for our church, and there's a big difference. We go saying, Lord, what, what do you want to do? And as we talked about last week, like Nehemiah, uh, the people of God, and the people of God in that day, they expected God to bless. They expected it. Based upon who God is and what he does, 
They expected God to bless. They built the wall, they organized the city, they got the worship team together, they raised up the church leaders, they wrote policy so that things could run smoothly and people could be taken care of properly. And as we'll see today, they built a pulpit so that the people could gather for worship corporately and the word of God could be preached and taught effectively. So, we, meaning us at Lighthouse Church, we expect God to bless us. We do. And people are coming to Idaho. I mentioned last week, we are in the top five states, uh, percentage-wise, of where people are moving to. And the secret is out. This is an awesome place. And so we expect that many more people are coming and many more people in the Magic Valley, in Twin Falls, are going to come to Christ. We believe that. And so we want to be able to lead them to Jesus and disciple them. We want to be able to love them and encourage them and see them serving the Lord and growing in their faith and so on. And yet... The world is growing darker, it seems, by the minute. Our country is, is abandoning its founding, and Antichrist spirit is at work in the world, it seems like, as never before. So why should we expect God to bless in such a climate, in such a dark time in history? Why? For the same reason that the Lord spoke through Elisha the prophet, remember this last week, 2 Kings 3, and he told Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, the two kings, who were now out of water, their soldiers dry as a bone, they were in the desert of Edom, which is a crusty desert, and they were in a tough spot. They went to Elisha, and Elisha said, here's what you do. You dig ditches in that dry, crusty desert floor. Just start digging ditches, boys. But there's no clouds in the sky. There's no forecast of rain anywhere. Why would we do that? And Elisha said, this is the word of the Lord. And so they did. They dug the ditches, and God sent the blessing, not the way they expected it, not according to their circumstances, not according to the situation that they were in. They dug in faith. God blessed their faith. That's the way it works. God wants his people to expect blessing and prepare for blessing. The prepare part, that's faith in action. So, even when times are dry and the going is tough, we expect and we prepare. Anything less than that is unbelief. We're just a faithless people at that point. And that's the word of the Lord to us as a church for this year. We are preparing for blessing. And we have a, we have a relatively small staff here at Lighthouse Church, and apart from the school and our custodial staff, there's eight people on our staff, three of whom are part-time. And we have realized more than ever that each person on our staff has to be able to function <laughs> with high efficiency. And so uh, we've got to lay out our calendar and plan way ahead and plan well. 
We've got to communicate clearly and abundantly amongst the staff, for sure, and with you, the congregation. We've got to serve you well so that you can serve well and that you can flourish in your walk with the Lord. And it takes 50 or more people to pull off a Sunday morning service here. So there's five full-time staff, three part-time staff, and there's 50 people who right now are serving to make this happen this morning by the grace of God. So, in addition to worship and prayer and the word and all of that, we, we spent much of our time at the getaway assessing and organizing and bringing clarity to everyone's role and the expectations uh, that are attached to it. Our most valuable asset is, uh, for our church is not the property, folks. It's you. It's you, the people of God. And so... According to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, my job and the job of anybody who stands uh, up here behind this pulpit is to equip you for works of ministry that God has called you to do. He has a calling upon you. He's gifted you. And so this year, we want to help you discover your gifts, and we want to help you employ your gifts in the areas that God has called you. So there's gonna be a lot of focus on that, a lot of opportunity for you to explore God's call upon your life. And that's what Nehemiah did. Uh, he heard the call of God in his life. You remember back in chapter one, he, after four months of prayer and, and strategizing, he went to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. He wanted to get the wall rebuilt so that the temple could be open and, the, and God's people could gather for worship. The word could then be preached and the people could be blessed and delivered and forgiven and they could begin to live flourishing kinds of lives. And as soon as they, as soon as they started building, Mark this, people, as soon as you answer the call upon your life and you start to go for it with the Lord, opposition will come. Sanballats and Tobias will show up in your life. And they will, they will uh, oppose you. They will perhaps slander you and gossip about you. Sanballat didn't claim to be a believer. Tobiah claimed to be a believer. And he was close with some of the people in and around Jerusalem. And so he would gossip about Nehemiah. He would get insider information and, and use that against Nehemiah. Started right from the jump. And so you've got to be prepared. You've got to know that that's the way it's gonna go. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Famous statement, right, in Matthew 16. So gates are defensive. It's a defensive apparatus, right? Nobody, no soldier ever took a piece of picket fence into battle, right? That would be silly. Now, I know silly people take those things to football games, uh, and they sit next to the person with the D, and, um, but that's different. 
So the idea is this, Satan keeps people imprisoned behind gates, behind prison doors. And he does it through things like sin and addiction and bitterness and pride and uh, debauchery and, and, and things like spirituality and religion. All can be very powerful prison doors. Matthew 23, 15, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You're, you're you know, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives, and, and Jesus said, you guys think you're evangelizing people to God, when in fact you're evangelizing them to Satan. You're bringing them into a, a, a more a robust or tougher prison than they were in previously. Gates of hell. All of these kinds of things imprison people, and people are imprisoned all around us. So Jesus sends out his people, filled with the Spirit of God, to crash the gates of hell and get people free. That's what we do. We live with an awareness. Jesus said, open up your eyes to the disciples. The fields are white unto harvest, so we live with an awareness. I pray almost every single day of my life before leaving out the door, Lord, let me see like you see and think like you think today. Help me to be aware of what you're aware of today. I want to see the fields the way you see them. So the wall, the wall is built, the gates are hung and secure, people's gifts and callings are being identified, they need security, so people who watch the gates and, and love the people of God by keeping them safe are appointed, and so the security ministry is happening, they need worship leaders and musicians to lead God's people in worship, they need children's ministry people to love and disciple the littles, they need administrators to keep things moving and flowing and going, they need servants who would identify needs and just meet the needs, the gift of helps or servanthood in the New Testament. They need givers who would give generously to, to see the vision and the projects come to completion and so on. And all of this is being done for the glory of God in anticipation that Messiah is going to show up one day and go into that temple. He's going to come into these walls and go into that temple as we've been expecting him, as the prophets have foretold now for centuries at this point. Just like us. What we do, we do it for the glory of God in anticipation of the arrival of Messiah, the return of Messiah. So, we've got, a, that's all introduction, but I'm going to give you five things, and these are going to go pretty quickly from our eight verses this morning. Five things from Nehemiah chapter eight. I want you to notice the hunger of the people. Verse one, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So now that the wall is finished, the gates are hung, people are appointed, the first 
thing that they do is call a gathering, call a worship service. Ezra the priest and Nehemiah make God's word the top priority for the people of the city and for the people of the area. Verse 2 says it was the first day of the seventh month, month, which means it was the Jewish New Year's Day. Month seven, day one, that's New Year's Day for the Jews. So they are saying, effectively, that the Lord has priority now. It's a new day. It's been, it's been all topsy-turvy for 140 years. And, and y'all have had all kind of different priorities, and you've been confused, and you've been, you know, not flourishing in life and so on. But now, now we're setting things right. The Lord is first. So imagine tens of thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem inside the freshly rebuilt wall with the brand new gates. They're gathered inside the water gate. That's not where Nixon, you know, did the bugging thing. But the gate on the eastern side of the wall near the Gihon Spring which was the only source of natural water for Jerusalem. That's why they called that gate the water gate because it was close to the water. And all of the people, thousands and thousands of people, just think of a giant rock concert, maybe a Taylor Swift concert, and they're chanting, bring us the Bible, bring us the Bible. We want God's word. I mean, they are, they are, they want it. They are hungry. But secondly, I want you to notice the goal in verse 2. So, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, before men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Man, this is so great. This is so powerful. Ezra brought the law, meaning a scroll that contained the first five books of the Bible, the law, the law of Moses, it was called, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He brings out the scroll, the law, and he begins to read from it. So I want just a little bit of a survey, and you can, you can answer this, just shout it out. What would you classify as a long sermon? Anybody? <laughs> I'm hearing a lot. Of it. So, so any, three hours, two hours, hour and a half. Okay, so Ezra started at about 9 a.m. And he wasn't done till 3 p.m. Early morning to midday. So y'all set your alarms for 4.30. That's when we're done today. <laughs> and they 
stood, the people stood the whole time. I mean, there's, there's something happening here, folks. I mean, these people are so hungry, and to, there's something powerful going on within them, and I sense some of that going on here in you, that, that, that there's something fresh happening inside of you, that there's a hunger. You know, a few times I'll you know, I'll go upwards of an hour or whatever, and I'll, I'll you know, you say, man, I'm wearing you guys out, we gotta end or whatever, and inevitably, two or three of you will come up to me and say, pastor, just keep going, just keep going. Now, some of you are going, don't encourage the guy, you know, <laughs> there be a little bit of that, but. Notice that those who were gathered were men and women and those who could understand. So the, it doesn't say it explicitly, but it implies that the children were ministered to separately. The, chi- the kids weren't there at the big gathering. And so they were able to, the kids were able to be ministered to on their own level. So the goal though, the goal was that the people who could understand the word of God would understand the word of God, okay? Listen, the the Bible is not a magic book. It it, it doesn't change someone because they read it or because they they heard it read or, or whatever. God's word has to be understood before it can enter into the heart and then unleash its power. A lot of people treat the Bible like it's a a good luck charm or something like that. I remember growing up in our, in our house, I, we were a Catholic family, and uh, as most Catholic families, at least in our area in Minnesota, uh, we had a, a Bible, a big family Bible on the coffee table in the living room. And to my recollection, I don't think anybody ever opened up that Bible. I mean, I don't ever remember anyone, my dad, my mom, my five siblings, I don't ever remember. Now, I remember just curious, just, you know, flipping through or whatever. But, you know, Charles Spurgeon, he used to say, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your finger. (laughs) Yeah, Spurgeon was like that sometimes. So... He told it. He told it. So there's lots of religious stuff there was growing up. I remember a crucifix hanging on the wall by the front door, and the crucifix was hollow, and you could move the, the, the front of the, the part where Jesus was hanging there. You could move that up, and there was holy water inside of the crucifix. And, and my dad had a St. Christopher statue on the dash of his car. And so there were all these kinds of things, you know, these religious uh, kind of items uh, all around us in, in growing up. And yet I discovered eventually God doesn't, he doesn't attach himself to that stuff. He doesn't tether himself or obligate himself to that stuff. He just doesn't. Maybe you remember when when King Saul 
This is, oh, I think it's 1 Samuel 4. King Saul and his army had gotten beaten in a battle pretty bad. The Philistines killed 4,000 of their men. And everybody's going, why did God allow this to happen? You know, what, what's going on? And so somebody said, hey, I know. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the box that has the Ten Commandments in it and the golden lid and all that. Let's bring that into battle and surely we'll be invincible. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, that's where, that's where the presence of God is. And so they went and they got the Ark of the Covenant. They brought it into battle. And when, when the uh, armies of Israel, when they saw it, I mean, they shout, they roared. Like, it was, wah! And the Philistines heard it from miles away and they're like, oh no! Oh no! And it freaked them out. And so the, the main Philistine guy says, all right, boys. You know, they are fired up. And so if, if you don't want to become a slave to those Hebrews, you go in and fight with all you got. And they did. And the is, Israelite army brings in the ark, front of the lines, and they go in. And the Philistines kill 30,000 of the Hebrews. And they take the ark from them. They thought God, God is... He's attached to this, isn't he? Doesn't he have to bless this thing if we have it? I mean, that's, that's what Raiders of the Ark was all about. Listen, the Bible's not a magic religious book. It contains God's word. The word of Almighty God. God's word is living and active is unlike any other book or writing in the world. It's the only book whose author sits down with us every time that we open it up. And he helps our heart to understand. Understanding what God is saying is vital. <laughs> it's a vital piece of the puzzle. It's the goal of Bible study, it's the goal of the Sunday morning sermon. Understand what the word of the Lord is. So the goal of Bible study, the goal of listening to preaching is not merely knowledge, it's knowledge of the Holy One. It's intimacy with our maker. It's getting the heart and the mind of our God for our lives. It's to have our lives transformed by the renewing of our minds. So David wrote in Psalm 119, 104, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So it's, once I understand your word, your precepts, all of a sudden, my heart is being changed and I hate that now. That thing that I used to like, I hate it. That's what God's word does. Shapes our desires. James calls God's word a mirror. How many of you woke up this morning, you went into your bathroom, you stood in front of the mirror, you looked at yourself and said, ready to go to church? <laughs> Little sparkle coming off your tooth, you know, and yee! No, the mirror showed you some things this morning, right? 
I mean, like, oh, ooh. This is going to take a minute. Yeah. Maybe you're new to the Bible and, and, and you've heard people call it the good book and that kind of thing. And you thought it was going to say, okay, be a good person and try and live a good life and God will bless you and he'll let you into heaven, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you start reading it and you read stuff like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All have become uh, worthless, you know, and like, ooh, this book is kind of judgy. <laughs> kind of a judgy book. <laughs> it is. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. It's telling the truth about you and about me. We look at it and go, ooh, need some work. There's no other book like it. The author is present with you every time you open it. There's such depth to it that every, every time I read a passage that I've read, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 times before, something new, a new level of depth will come out, a new angle. It, I, I'm astounded at how that works. And it's like being a kid in a candy store. Again, David said in Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light, the unfolding, the, the manifold words. There's many folds. You all have a trifold, billfold, some of you, and that's one fold, two. Well, this is, the word of God is manifold, many folds. And so we'll never get to the depths, but we will have fun trying. So the goal is to understand what God is saying. Number three, please notice the authority, the authority of God's word, verse four. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for, the, for this purpose. And beside him stood 13 guys that Leslie read their names, verse five. <laughs> and uh, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above the people and as he opened it, all the people stood. So, so they built, Nehemiah and the guys, they built a platform. We call it a stage today. And it was big enough to hold 14 guys on it. And Ezra unrolled the scroll as he was up on the stage and he was above the crowd. And, and the point is not that Ezra was above them. The point was that the scroll was above them. The point was that the word of God was over them. The point was that the word of God had authority over their lives. That's the point. That's the physical picture being painted. And so God's word has authority over us. It's authoritative. Many claiming the name of Christ these days, they put themselves above God's word. They judge and criticize or outright reject passages and, uh, you know, reject teachings and question the validity and all the rest. Tons of that going on. It has from the beginning. When Ezra unrolled the scroll and the people stood out of respect and reverence for God's word, it was a picture. You know, we added that, you know, we've been doing a lot of standing and sitting today. It reminds me of my Catholic days. And, um, and 
stand, standing for the reading of the word, we're gonna add that as a permanent feature of our Sunday morning. Because it just dawned on me like, man, that's such a beautiful reminder of the kind of reverence we need to nurture in our hearts for God's word. We won't allow Ron to keep making us sit in sand every time though. He's ornery though, no guarantees. So when Ezra unrolled the scroll, the people stood, and, uh, but that brings us to number four, their physical response, their physical response, verse six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, you know, it was like a doxology moment, the great God, and all the people answered amen and amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So a lot of physicality happening here in the people's worship. First of all, there's the amen and amen. Amen means so be it. It's a word of affirmation. Like the thing you just said, amen, so be it, so true. So they were engaged with their voices. Their voices were a part of the gathering. Now some of you wonder, I, you know, can we amen here at Lighthouse Church? Is that, can we do that? Okay, I, I tell you what, let's, let's just take this for a test drive. I'm gonna say something, and if you agree with it, say amen, amen. So amen twice, okay? The Lord is good. Amen. Awesome. The barrier's been broken. Let, let's try it again, let's try it again. Pastor Ron is old. We got the hang of it, man. We got the hang of it. So, <laughs> clapping is found in Scripture as well. And I was thinking about this, because you know a lot of times um, on Sunday morning we'll clap, you know, after the worship song is landing and that kind of thing. And, and, and I hope, and I, th I think, at least for most of us, the applause, is not, it's not for the worship team. It's not like the worship team is performing and we're clapping for the worship team. But rather, it's an affirmation of the truth we just sang about our God. We're celebrating our God. So we clap, and that's biblical. But notice, they, they lift their hands. They lift their hands and the lifting of hands is found, is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and so some Christians get a little freaked out about this. And I remember being a young Christian and going, God, this is a little, this is kind of getting up in my grill here. People are raising, like, do they expect me to do this? And, and, and it was, there was a pride thing going on in me. Like, I don't want to be seen as the, you know, ah. And I had, to, I had to work through what to me was a test, a test of my pride. Would I lay down my pride before God and humble myself? And so, you know, different denominations have different, you know, forms of expression and so on. And, uh, and some denominations feel like any kind of that expression is a little excessive. Presbyterians, you know, they'll get to about right here maybe with their hands, maybe. 
If you get from a Baptist background, sometimes, you know, maybe a little bit of this. If you're from Calvary, you're probably going to get right to here, jumping jack uh, area right here. You know, you might be a go for it kind of person. If you're AG, you, you're, you know, you're reaching to the sky. So I think that physicality in worship is a barrier because a lot of us want to play our cards close to the vest. We don't want to give it away. I don't want to be, you know, too demonstrative. What would people think if I start going crazy in church and I'm saying amen and I'm lifting my hands and, and you know, I have, I mean, I've got some status in my life, some authority in my life. What would my people think if they saw me doing this, raising my hands? I'm a business owner. What would people think if my employees saw me? I'm a supervisor. What would they think? I'm a, I'm a city council member. What, what would people think if I'm in church doing this and saying amen? Well, I'll just tell you this from my own life personally. I lift my hands in worship, number one, because it's biblical. Psalm 63, four, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Amen and amen. And there's many more passages. New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without quarreling, the men. That's you, men. But secondly, it communicates to God and to me that I surrender. Pastor Ron opened up with a, a little devotional thought during announcements, saying that it's all about surrender. The lifting of hands is a sign of surrender to God. But thirdly, it communicates to God and to me, to me as well. Sometimes I have to be reminded that I am needy. I need the Lord. Pastor Greg said, you know, you need him more today than you did yesterday. That's true. The, the more mature we get in the Lord, the more we realize we need him. And so lifting hands like a child lifts hands to their parents to receive. So it's a posture of humility and need. And lastly, it confronts my pride. Because just like you, I'll think, oh, I don't want to lift my hands, man. I feel people are watching. It's just, ah. And then I realize that pride, pride, like, I'm, I'm worried about what people will think. According to Proverbs 29, that's a snare, that's a trap. So David, you know the story. He's, he's leading the ark coming back to Jerusalem. He strips down, gets rid of all of his royal clothing, gets down to the, to the priestly garment, the linen underwear, essentially, and he's dancing with all his might. In worship. Did, David, did you think David had a moment where he's going, I don't know. I don't know about this one. 
God, I feel like you're telling me to dance, but I don't know. Feels a little weird to me. I'm the king. And David determined, Lord, it's you. It's for you. I'm going for it. And he did. But what happened when he got home? His wife, Michael, said, aren't you something? <laughs> Dancing all in front of the people and the girls and the, you just, what a pathetic show of. And David said, you know what? When it comes to the worship of my God, I will be even more undignified than this. David confronted his pride, didn't he? Could it be that God's asking you to confront your pride? Might be. Listen, you, you don't have to, it's not, you don't have to do it. You don't have to, but you can. I know you can. Some of you have been arrested. I know you can lift your hands. <laughs> Y'all are laughing because you know it's so true. All right. Number five, and we're done. They're questions. They're questions answered, and I love this. Verse seven, also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, and so on. Verse eight, um, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there it comes again, the importance of understanding what God is saying. So they read the scripture, and then there are certain people, skilled, they were out amongst the crowd, and these are pastors, we would say, uh, people who are, you know, uh, good with the word of God, they got a handle on it, and people would have questions. What does that mean in Deuteronomy? What does that mean? And they would be able to answer their questions. And they gave the distinction of the passage. And listen, that's what we aim to do here, week in and week out, is give the distinction of the passage. And I, you know, I got convinced of this method decades, literally decades ago, that when you go through the Bible and you work through a book through its verses and its paragraphs in succession, you are automatically hitting every verse, every thought in the context in which it was written. And so you are discovering what the actual uh, section is saying because you've got, you're in the flow of the whole thing. And the whole goal is to understand it. And then the goal for me is to be able to communicate it to you each and every Sunday morning. And that's the goal for anybody else who steps behind this pulpit as well, because that's what we need. We need the Word of God. There's all kind of other stuff out there that can, you know, do this for you and do that for you. You can, you know, take your Enneagram thing and find out what number you are, and maybe that'll give you an insight into this or that. You can go to 
whatever. I mean, there are a ton of stuff that might do some things for you, but there's nothing, nothing that will do for you what God's word will do for you when you understand it. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. We love your word. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Lord, help us to revere and reverence your word, not as some magic charm that sits in our car or in the living room or whatever, but that we crack open on a day-by-day basis and we sit with you, the author, and we ponder, we meditate, we think about what you're saying. We talk to you about it. And thus we feed. It's a meal. It's nourishment. I've desired thy word more than my daily food, said Job. So Lord, I pray for that hunger in us, for those that are maybe not all that hungry and fired up about it. God, would you, would you bring a deep and abiding hunger for your word? Lord, for those who are excited and partaking, oh Lord, just let your word have its way. Blaze through our lives, Lord. Bring change, bring more Christ-likeness. And Lord, as we, as we pray that you would bring many more people to Jesus in this valley, Lord, that we would be ready to love them, to disciple them, to encourage them, to answer their Bible questions, Lord, to walk with them. And so, Lord, bless the churches, the Bible-believing, faithful churches of the Magic Valley, and bring the blessing, Lord. We'll keep digging the ditches. You bring the blessing, Lord, your way, your time. Lord, for some of us, maybe you're, you're saying, maybe there's a challenge today that was just a, a confront pride, confront it. Don't let it keep you down. And that's a, that's a good challenge for us, Lord, whether it's in regards to the physicality of our worship, whether we raise our hands or some other area, that we find ourselves just, just so worried about what people think. So Lord, that's, that's, that's idolatry. So free us from that, Lord. Lord, for those 
who have never came to Christ for salvation, let this be their day, Lord. Would you right now just tap the shoulder, knock on the heart of that one, that two, those three that are here with us this morning. They've never put their faith in Jesus. Maybe they've been religious, maybe not, but they've never taken that step to say yes to Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for their sins, rose from the dead, and offers salvation to all who would ask. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if that's you, if you would like to ask Christ into your life today, raise up your hand right now. Raise it up good and high. And then in a moment, I'm going to pray with you. And Jesus Christ is going to come into your life. God bless you, ma'am, way in the back. And he's going to come in. He's going to wash away your sin. And he's going to become your Lord and your Savior. And at that point, he will never leave you or forsake you. And you will begin your new life in him, washed of your sin. God bless you. Anybody else before we pray? God bless you. Yeah, God bless you over here. That's awesome. And God bless you back here. I see your hand back here. All right, lots of hands. Lord, I'm so grateful for every one of these people, Lord, who are raising their hand to say, yes, I want Jesus in my life. I'm ready to ask him to take it over and to cleanse me and to make me new. I'm ready to receive him as my Lord. So Lord, would you do the miracle of salvation right now? Everyone who raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer. Repeat this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, that you died on the cross for me. Yeah. And that you rose from the dead. I receive you now by faith as my Lord and my Savior. I give you control, Lord. I let go and I give you control. So my life is yours. In your name I pray. Amen. Yeah, let's welcome those who prayed this morning.